everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview today with Matt Fire, a local islander. Let's see. Matt, how many years have you been here? Two, almost two. Okay, okay. All right. A, a, an infant local islander. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I think I'm like maybe in middle school because I've been here 12 years, right? Sure, yeah. sure. There you go. Right. Okay, great. So um, Matt Thayer and I are going to be talking about a whole bunch of different stuff. You are listening to Voice of Vashon on 101.9 FM, and I am really excited about this interview. I love talking to local authors. I love my international authors and all that as well, but there's something special about chatting with a person who I see on a regular basis at Coffee Luna or otherwise run into at the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> Frame uh, who you are and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I'm a middle-aged author who is also a stay-at-home dad. I work uh, pretty much my, my youngest just got into kindergarten, so he's he's kind of the center of much of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. But now that he's in kindergarten, the amount of time that I'm writing has gone through the roof, and it's been really, really rewarding. So, right, Well, summer was hard on your writing schedule, wasn't it? It was horrible. There's yeah. just so much to do. Right. So, yeah. I, I mean, okay, I like being warm. I really like being warm, but I sort of hate summer. It's, yeah. It's this miserable season of endless busyness. Definitely, definitely. There's always something to do every day. There's something to do. And even when there's nothing planned to do, you're going to be outside doing something. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's the, the nice thing about the summer is that, that, that there's so many things to go out and do and play and fun. It's, it's, I, one of the things that I found about being a stay-at-home parent is that I get to be a kid all over again. Mm. So I've, I've been learning how to play again and have a good time just mm -hmm. like I did when I was, you know, seven. So. Right, right. <laughs> and you get to actually experience the seasons because you're not stuck in a box all day long. Definitely. How about we do a little bit more about you and about the inciting incident in your life that took you from a non-writing career to a writing career? Sure. It was a big shift. Yeah, definitely. Um, I used to work for, I was an engineer at a Pacific Northwest um, software concern uh, for a long time, almost two decades. And in 2012, um, I came down with a seizure disorder that kind of totally turned my world on end. Mm -hmm. um, the end of that, that particular problem resulted in me not having a job with them anymore and really not having very much of an idea of what I wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. um, what I knew I didn't want to do was be in a cubicle farm again. Um, making software, writing software for somebody, or for that matter, hardware. I did a lot of hardware work. Mm -hmm. I tried a couple of things and didn't really find my footing. Um, and at one point, um, I, working with the, the psychotherapist that I had, um, I had started writing um, more as uh, therapy than anything else. And uh, eventually, what I realized was that I was writing kind of anecdotal accounts of things that had happened to me in the past, and um, they were pretty good stories. I started writing just for fun. Mm -hmm. um, I'd done this before. I'd written extensively and journaled quite a bit, but never with the intent of actually trying to publish or, for that matter, make any money from it. And this is kind of a, a revolution for me was that, A, I could do this, and B, that... Um, that it was just a matter of time and effort that separated me from some sort of success in, in this this particular pursuit. Basically, the science fiction world is where you were working. Oh, gosh, what's that little beep sound? Chee -chee, whatever it is, you know, the, the Star the Trek. Star Trek communicators, yeah. Yeah, yep. we've all got them. And, yeah, we sit around just sort of like, to us, they're just this basic, blasé, normalized thing. Yeah, and but 25 years ago, people would have been like, Wow. The idea of a smartphone 25 years ago was was in many ways the premise of an entire show. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or it was this thing that would happen way, way. I mean, I we are more advanced technologically right now than um. What was that other show that they had? You know, okay, everyone in the audience, think with me for a second. Um, uh, one of the Flash. Gordon? Oh, yeah. Flash Gordon, yeah. Right? He's, like, we're, we're way... Yeah, he was supposed to be thousands of years yeah. ahead of us, wasn't he? Definitely. Um, and and not, not only that, but Flash Gordon had, you know, some fantastic te technology that was 
was almost fantasy at the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the rocket ships that these guys are flying around in are, mm-hmm. are fantastic to an audience, you know, at the time when, when those stories were coming out. hadn't even gone to the moon yet. No. We hadn't even actually achieved orbit when some of the first stuff had, had come out. Right. So. So you had the seizure situation going on. Mm-hmm. And basically, this is so interesting because um, when I sat down and started writing my novel, um, I had pulled both of the hamstrings mm-hmm. in my legs and was sitting on my butt, unable to do all the normal things I did, ride a bike, theater, all the stuff I was doing. And I'm sitting there and I was like, oh, well, maybe all right. Yeah, like, one day it was it was basically a matter of one day I was sitting at home. Uh, I couldn't drive. I couldn't really get out and go do things. I was I w- was riding a bike, even though I probably shouldn't have been. <laughs> and uh, uh, one day I just, you know, sat down. And I this is kind of an interesting idea. Maybe I'll, you know, take some of the my experiences. I was a backcountry wilderness guard um, for the Forest Service many years mm-hmm. ago, and uh, maybe I'll take some of those experiences and try and translate them into some something that looks like science fiction. Mm-hmm. And I did. And you know it. I don't think it was publishable at the time, but it certainly was a lot of fun for me. And it was it was a great way to kind of recollect some of those memories that I had lost. That was another problem with the the seizures is that I actually had some pretty severe memory loss. Mm. Um, and so I, I got to spend some time more or less being mindful of what had gone on in my past. Right, um, right, researching your own life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and plumbing those experiences and saying, you know, what, what part of this experience is something that I remember remembering mm-hmm. and what part of it is something that I truly remember. Wow. Which is in and of itself probably a fascinating aspect of many science fiction stories. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The, the yeah, idea of memory. Talk about memory and soil. consciousness and, and yeah. things like that is, yeah, that's some very fertile ground. Yeah, 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 so. yeah. yeah. Now, you have a published book already, right? I have several published books. Um, okay, and the name, the Buckle one is the one that always comes to mind yeah, for me. Yeah, um, Big so Red Buckle book. is a novelette that I wrote mm-hmm. in um, 2013, mm-hmm. um, and I that's independently published. Um, mm-hmm. I had tried to, to um, look for a publisher. Mm-hmm. At the time, no one was publishing Wait, shorter what works. What year did you say, 2012? Tw- 2013. 13? Mm-hmm. Yeah, still, that's, that's still like... That's near, that's the collapse. I mean, your publishing was still in the throes of its collapse at that point. Definitely. Oh, it's and, been a hard decade. And, and not only, not only the publishers, traditional publishers were having a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, okay, we'll, we'll cut some slack there for them. But um, one of the things that I, I had realized and a lot of the rejection letters that I got back from the first, that first book were... Um, we're really, hey, we're not interested in publishing short works. They'll never make money for us. So thank you for adding your, your work to our slush pile, you know, six, nine months later. Right. Here's right. your rejection letter. Um, yeah. And what I basically got frustrated with this idea that I had to wait that long in some cases to mm-hmm. get a rejection. Um I started following some folks. I'd gone to a couple of conventions uh, the following year in 2014. I, I did a number of conventions and science fiction, fantasy um, themed conventions all around the country. A lot of them were in Detroit. Um, anyways, I one of the things that I noticed was that there was this kind of growing collection of people that were either hybrid published or independently published. Mm-hmm. Um, some oh, sure, absolutely. It's a, it's a- yeah. Talk about it was just beginning. It was just beginning back then to really explode. Um, mm-hmm. I I met a couple of folks that uh, you know basically said, "Hey, if I had it to do over again," um, and these were traditionally published authors. If I had it to do over again, I might actually consider doing it myself. And so everything's in a flux. And what you're talking about is rather than try to go through those big giant industry yeah. companies, you're like. I'm going to go this new path. Definitely. And it was a conscious decision. Well, sure. Um, yeah. It was something that I talked with uh, with my wife um, over a long period of time. Um, and, and basically what I did was I started evaluating what my options were. Um, the more I read, the more I researched into to these kinds of relationships, the more I realized that I would still be doing all of this work, even if I found an agent, even if I found 
uh, a publisher um, for mm-hmm. anything that I wrote. Um, and, I, you know, I, w- I would be doing my own promotion work um, to find my own readers and getting less for it. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah. then on top of that, we had this kind of this period where where the major publishing houses kind of collapsed. Right. I mean, I think there's only five of them now. There, there are the big five. That's the it. big five. Yeah. yeah. Right. The big five are are great big, essentially mastheads competing mastheads that are almost universally focused on um, trying to take back market share from Amazon. It, Amazon has really whooped their butt, which actually plays right into the concept of science fiction because, oh my gosh, I don't know about everyone else in the world, but I'm really excited when I can just sit down at my computer in my living room, tapity tap, 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 and then over the next two weeks, like 19 boxes show up with all of these things that I would have had to have driven off island, all over Seattle, sat in rush hour traffic to nine different stores Definitely. in order to find all those things. Yeah. And I was just bragging about this to my son the other day as all these boxes show up. And I'm like, I'm suddenly really, really, really liking this. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is great. When, when a, since, since becoming an islander, I have tried to eliminate any any possibility of leaving the island. And... <laughs> And Amazon gets a lot of my just day-to-day business because, you know, if if I can't get it on the island, I'm going to go there first. And that is the caveat. If you can't get on the island, I was buying pillows. And I don't know anyone on the island that actually sells pillows. But, um, yes, I either buy island or if I can't, I really don't want – I mean, plus the traffic in Seattle. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I can't wait till they start start sending me my boxes of dried seaweed by drone. That's going to be so much fun. Oh, I, I really look forward to that. <laughs> by drone. Airdrops. Yeah. Yeah. We've done those. Or avocados. Avocados? Yeah. Avo- by drone. By drone. Yeah. Because you have Amazon Fresh, right? And Amazon Fresh is their fresh food component where they, yeah. they literally have a warehouse somewhere in your locality. Uh-huh. And the reason that you can't get Amazon Fresh here is because of the ferry. They they have their own trucks to send everything, right? Sure, sure. But imagine if you can go on your computer and say, I'd like a box of avocados and some tequila, and they will put (laughs) it in a box and load it onto, you know, an airborne drone, which will fly to the island, land at your house, drop off your box, and then take off and leave you alone. Okay, this is like the owls in Harry Potter. But this this is actually happening. Right? And You're joking. No, I'm not joking. They're they, using drones somewhere in the world they, already? They're actually testing drones, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, just just go get your tequila and avocados in Mexico. Like, do it proper. <laughs> All right, okay, okay. So, back to, so, 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 yes, yeah. you had um, this change in your life circumstance. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of different people over the years. And a lot of times people who started writing, it was around a big shift because writing takes so much time. Something in your life that's taking up time has to step out of the way. So whether it's retirement or the kids go away to college or, you know, you get injured and suddenly you can't do this, that or the other. So yours is actually a pretty familiar sort of Sure. I, I think there's a story. lot of people that, that have, that, that spend a lot of time with their career. It is hard not to in this yeah. day. Yeah. I am I am very firmly ensconced in the generation generation X. Right? Mm-hmm. So and and much like yourself, I yeah. I think that I came up knowing that I would have to if I wanted to enjoy a middle class lifestyle, I would have to choose a career and stick with it. That mm-hmm. was the indoctrination, right? Um yes, yeah. One of the things, though, that I never realized, and and you know, I I am privileged because my wife still works. Um, mm-hmm. She works a full time job and and spends a couple of days off island every week, and you know, she's she's the one bringing home the bacon, um, mm-hmm. at least right now. But I am privileged to be able to focus on creative endeavors, mm-hmm. um, as well as you know keeping my castle from becoming my hassle because that's a big part of it too. Oh, God, no kidding. (laughs) Recently, someone said to me, they were quoting someone, and I don't remember who they were quoting, but the quote was basically, oh, you want to be a writer as a a career? (laughs) Okay, marry someone rich. Yeah. 
You know, yeah. it's like just it's, go it's get money hobby. elsewhere. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. I know. It's an expensive hobby, it, but at the same time, there are a lot of other expensive hobbies out there. It's and, true. And I had a career which supported some of those, and um, you know, I. I Rebuilt Volkswagen buses, for instance, and you want to talk about expensive. Uh, yeah, I yeah, can imagine. It's, it's a, a great place to throw your money into to a hole in the ground, essentially. So, yep, yep, um, on wheels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you went ahead and transitioned into writing, and in particular, you like science fiction. And mm-hmm. one of the things that surprised me earlier when we were chatting is, um, I grew up reading science fiction and fantasy pretty much mm-hmm. i wasn't really into chiclet i still don't do chiclet mm-hmm. um i didn't do romance still don't do romance don't do mystery those are not my personal mm-hmm. areas it was really sci-fi and fantasy that was the section of the used bookstore or wherever the library that i would always go to and um and you mentioned that you feel there may be actual some societal prejudice against the genre of science fiction i think there definitely is so so explain a little bit about that because it wasn't something that really came to mind for me i I think that there there are some literary circles that look down on science fiction when when i meet people on the street um even islanders right um and sometimes you know one of the most common questions in American society is what do you do? Right. right? And my response is I'm a stay at home dad and I write science fiction. Uh, right. And I, yeah. I can just imagine. Yeah. And, and you can imagine what most people say to that, right? Or what they don't say. Yeah. And, and some of it is, is what their body is saying, not necessarily what they're saying, but a lot of times what people will come back to is that they, they, they'll leave the stay at home dad part alone. Right. And and they'll they'll latch on to the science fiction fiction part. And a lot of what they say is I don't read science fiction. And really? A lot of people say that. They I don't read science fiction as if it's somehow lesser lesser fiction. Right. As if a story written about something in the future about centered around technology as a premise can be um, is, is somehow lesser fiction. Right. What they're reading, hmm. you know, maybe they're reading you know, comedy fiction, right? And and that's somehow better. But, but it is actually, you know, it's just sort of, it's, it is a strange sentence mm-hmm. because if someone were to say, oh, you know, like I write, I'm a stay-at-home mom and I write romance novels, I wouldn't say, oh, I don't read romance, even though I don't. I I think, I mean, I sure, I've read a couple of books in my life that would have fallen into that genre it's just not an area that I ever really intentionally go towards. So, but I wouldn't say that. I'd be like, "Oh, wow, romance novels! Oh, that's amazing! Tell me about it." Like, yeah. I would be curious. But that is interesting. It does seem like the phraseology I think, yeah. of "I don't read science fiction" does come across a little bit like I've written that genre off as of having low value. Yeah, and and at at literary festivals, I have actually run into the same kind of prejudice, but much more overt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to the, this idea that we, I, I believe that we're living science fiction. Right. Why wouldn't you read science fiction if you are living it? I mean, if you if you look back 10 years or 50 years or 100 years mm-hmm. um, into the past, our stories are the same. But the, the people were when people were writing back then are imaginings of things that are going to happen in the future. We, we were, you know, talking about Star Trek. That's a really great example of something, right. a, a, a story, essentially, that has been written and rewritten and rewritten and retold. But it's always about something just at the edge of believability. It is mm-hmm. fantastic, mm-hmm. the technology that these people are working with. But, but also, though, it's never the technology that is the center of the story. It's it is the not. human relationships yeah. and the um, themes, the morals, the challenges, the questions. It, when um so I am also generating you and I are practically the same age. Yeah. What day is your birthday? September thirtieth. Oh, and yeah, I'm, I'm October fifth. Yeah. Oh, you're six days older than yeah. I am. <laughs> All right, okay, finally you'll lord that over me forever, won't you? <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. <laughs> it's like the, 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 the twin that's nine minutes older. Yeah. So um so for example, um I grew up on Star Trek, mm-hmm. obviously. We're talking the good old-fashioned Star Trek. And I even got into the, the one with um, Pat 
Patrick is the name of the actor. Yeah. Uh, started TNG, Next Generation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. I did that one too. Mm-hmm. And what I took away from that was that Star Trek basically – what, what the irony is, so I watched Star Trek growing up, and then I have kids, and I said to my kids as they started to grow up, look, think of it this way. You're a visitor to this planet, and when you landed on this planet, you were plunked into this body that you have, which is sort of like your spaceship on this planet, and your body is going to last as long as it's going to last. And if you take care of it, it might last 85, 95 years. If you don't take care of it, it might break down at 55 or something, but that's your spaceship and you're on this planet for anywhere from maybe 50 to 80 years. And think of yourself like the people on the enterprise. Think of yourself as, Hey, you know, I got somewhere around 70 some odd years to explore this planet. And when you have that type of perspective, suddenly it changes how you look at your life completely from a perspective of, you know, fear, lack, doubt, and I'm going to try to buy a house, get a car, a dog, and live right here and be safe as if the whole world is your enemy or some dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it all actually goes back to Star Trek because the way I look at Star Trek is while they would pretend they were going to planet to planet to planet, Mm -hmm. every planet they went to was really sort of like landing on a different country on planet Earth. They basically just looked around the planet. A new culture. Yeah, yeah, they just took cultures that exist here, and they put some scales and some fins and some weird colors in the sky, and they threw them on a other planet, and then they went off and had a cultural exchange between the yeah. American Federation attitudes and the Iranian or the South American or the whatever culture it yeah. was. So to me, sci-fi has always been about exploration and fantastically interesting. Well, and I think that there's a there's a there's kind of a new generation of science fiction coming up. Um, that's actually another thing that we can talk about is this idea that that um, there's in, within science fiction, there's this right. idea that old science fiction is somehow better than new science fiction. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the, the notion that, that old science fiction is better than new science fiction is, is really, it's almost kind of looking backwards. It's this kind of nostalgia for an experience that you can't have because you weren't alive then. So, for instance, Robert Heinlein wrote a lot of experiences from when he was a naval uh, officer in, in I think, the 30s. Mm-hmm. So a lot of his stories were based on his experiences uh, working on ships. Right. right. And, and you know, his, his stories are very military-oriented and, and uh, they're definitely space opera. But, you know, those experiences, looking back at that and saying, well, this is foundational, sure, this is classic, great. Mm-hmm. But but saying it's somehow better than, say, Paolo Bacci Galuppi, I don't think is, who's a contemporary writer who I really enjoy, mm-hmm. um, is, is necessarily true. Well, I don't think judgment is ever really necessarily true and or necessary. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, humans do have a, a very sad, fatal flaw in that we seem to want to categorize everything in comparative, you know, levels and stuff like that. It's not just that we're comparing things. I mean, it's okay to compare things. It's okay to judge, I think. But Mm -hmm. I think what the problem becomes is that we create these brands, right? And we stand behind our brand Mm -hmm. of whatever, you know, whether it's sugar water or or science fiction, um, we stand behind that brand. And, and, the we loyalty feel, piece. Yeah, we feel when when that loyalty is violated, when somebody judges neg- our brand negatively, mm-hmm. we feel somehow that it is a it, an implicit judgment on us. It hurts us, and there's even some some really interesting science um, on on that concept recently that I've been digging into. Is oh. this idea that that uh, that people who ascribe to a brand are are experiencing basically a stress reaction, uh, mm. a hormonal stress, rea- stress reaction when they hear negative judgments on the brand. So if you really liked Coke and I said, Coke is nothing but sugar water, it's going to rot your teeth and turn you into, you know, a blob, um, that could, you know, cause you to experience a stress reaction mm-hmm. that that will will degrade your health still further. Well, more than that, it also interferes with your logic. 
You know, it's like being a football fan of a particular team. And then, oh, I don't know, those footballs seem to be a little bit flatter than they're supposed to be. But I love my team. Therefore, I can't pay any attention to any of the facts or information. I must must blind myself because I don't want to allow. The rational argument in that case is much less important than than the emotional argument that you that you almost almost jump to. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think that a lot in our society is actually set up that way. Um Well, to... and humans are a bit loyalty based. Definitely. By nature as a yeah, creature. Yeah. We're we're definitely tribal. There's I don't think there's anything different from from you and me between you and me and and you know our ancestors of 50,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um genetically we are exactly the same. We still respond to the same stimuli in the same way. Which would explain a lot of the behaviors happening on yeah. the planet right now. <laughs> so real quickly, when yep. it comes to loyalty, there are some forms of loyalty which are fabulous and wonderful. Yep. And I'm going to go ahead and mention for everyone who's just joining us that this is me, March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'm interviewing fellow Islander and writer extraordinaire, in my opinion, Matt Fire <laughs> uh, today on Voice of Vashon, KVSH, your local radio station, which is brought to you and me and listeners around the world through the generous support of Quartermaster Cottage, where the harbor view showcases each season from the front deck. The spacious interior is always bright, and the location offers access to island activities as well as relaxing walks on the beach and some peace and quiet. Open year-round, you can find uh, you know, reservation information and other things like that at QuartermasterCottage.com. Thank you so much for supporting our local radio station. And, of course, we also have received a great deal of support from Vashon Theater, the island's one and only movie house, running continuously since 1947. How's that for some amazing history? (laughs) Striving to have something for everyone, Vashon Theater is amazing. And it is your watch local opportunity. I must say, I virtually never go to a movie off island anymore, ever. I pretty much have become myself this very loyal Vashon theater person just because I would never want Vashon to not have their local a movie theater. theater. Yeah. Yes. And therefore, I am a loyal patron. And so, loyalty can be a good thing. Yeah. Oh, definitely. All right. So we have about 20 more minutes in the show, and what I want to do is we've been talking about science fiction a little bit, guys. We've been talking about um, how sometimes people can be prejudiced against a particular genre of writing, and this may or may not make a lot of sense. Um, In particular, though, the idea that science fiction is, in a way, what we're living. My son, a week before school started, he's going into high school as a freshman, um, we, I think I was watching Harry Potter or something. Oh, I know. We were coming home from Bellingham and I had the book on tape in the car. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you're going to be going to high school. It's going to be just like going to Hogwarts. It's going to be so much fun. And he just looks at me like I'm insane. He's like, what are you talking about? They learned magic. And I'm like, well, yeah. But what they learned how to do with wands and magical spells is actually really similar to what you can learn how to do with a test tube and a computer and, you know, wires and electricity and trying to get him to understand that if he actually lived in the magical world, he'd probably find wands and magical spells about as normal and maybe boring as he currently views some of the academic stuff he might be Certainly, doing yeah, now. And, and I was like, so really actually just get, ex-, you know, I was trying to get him excited about school. Yeah. <laughs> but so the point you were making about how we are living a sci-fi life definitely. in so many ways. Yeah. Definitely. I'm just waiting for the embedded stuff. I mean, I figure in the next, it's, it's already there. Oh. There are people, there are people experimenting with it on a day-to-day basis. It's pretty amazing. What were you telling me? Isn't there something like they're going to have things embedded in their wrists, which are like their chips to get in the door of buildings or something yeah. like security yeah. you access? Can, you can actually do that right now. They're, they're, so for instance, when you radio tag a dog, right? right? we put our RFID chip. It's like a little grain of rice. Right. It's an electronic device that reflects back a radio signature when pinged. And we put these into dogs now. Now, yeah, that's and a, cats. That's a very simple circuit. Yeah, right. Uh, pets in general, yeah. right? Um, it's a very simple circuit. It doesn't contain a lot of information, but depending on how it's actually set up, you can actually build these things so that that um, 
a lot of information is actually there, right? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you could have the same kind of chip put into you with all of your medical information. And for a guy like me who has a seizure disorder, if I have a seizure, mm -hmm. right, I don't, I have no way of telling somebody while I'm having a seizure that that here's my medical history. These, these are the kinds of seizures that I routinely mm -hmm. have. These are the things that you need to look for. My heart has stopped this many times, et cetera. And right? the little bracelet that has the little flat piece of metal on it, it's going to give a little bit of information, like it, it, I'm a diabetic or this or that, but it, yeah. it can't give you a it lot of detail. It may not even be with me all of the time. I don't even right. wear my wedding ring all the time because, right. because I tend to not like to wear those kinds of things. They bother me. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, having wearable information is, is going to be really, really powerful. But, you know, take that a step further. Think about this idea of, of melding your, your mind with a machine. We have people that are actually, there are people today that are developing um, the ability to, to create neural laces, the idea that you can insert wires into a brain and extract information and, and or read what's going on is happening. Um, there was uh, a study that was completed recently where uh, kind of a preliminary um, a preliminary vision test was created. So they were basically able to, using um, a, a brain scan, uh, a series of brain scans of people looking at the same thing over and over again, mm -hmm. recreate the image that they were all seeing. Mm. So that's just the brain scan. That's not even direct connect. Right. Um, you know, there's cochlear implants are a really great example of a direct connect. These, these are devices that people have installed into their head, and it literally transmits sound from an electronic device into the auditory centers of the brain, giving people the ability to hear. I can't even imagine how that is possible. I know it happens, and I, I it's sort of like how they make chewing gum. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I'm like, how? It's a stick, and it's flat, and it's in paper, and it's dry, and it's like... What? You know, I mean, yeah. that alone makes my brain sort of twist around how they create factories and how they build things. But then this stuff, it's like... Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah there you go. Sort of speechless. Yeah. And yet it's I, happening. I think, I think you know, I've, I've written a lot about augmentation. So the idea that um, uh, I'm, my left foot and ankle is, is, you know, kind of bionic. I had an injury when I was in the army and, and they went in and put some pins and other things in to allow me to continue to walk and still use my foot. Um, but imagine if instead of putting in metal hardware, they were able to re-engineer um, the parts of my body that I lost. Um, well, they grew an ear on a mouse. Yeah, they've done that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, stem cells, et cetera. That, that's, that's science fiction. Right? I know. This is this is the thing. <laughs> this is the thing of dreams and imagination. This is the thing of medical ethics. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is the thing of um, conundrums. This is sure. the thing of um, yeah. But, but science, much of science fiction, tries to tackle those questions and and evaluate them. Right. So, um, you know, I'm working on a piece right now, which which um, you know basically is is uh, a, a long discussion of of the advantages of giving up liberty um, for, you know, medical advances and, um, and, and how, you know, how the bad guys essentially leverage that, that exchange to their own advantage. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's fun in that regard um, because I get to, you know, take on the questions and write about zombies all at the same time. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. And well, you know, okay. So for the people who are listening right now, mm -hmm. who are, are, are suddenly realizing, oh my goodness gracious, this is, this is a whole big giant kettle of worms. Yeah. It can be opened up in a lot of ways. Um, there's a couple of things. One folks, is it, where is it? There it is. All right. So Matt has a website. And the name of it is feetforbrains.com. I'm going to say that again. Feet, those things in your shoes, for, F-O-R, brains, the stuff that zombies like to eat, dot com. And what's really cool about his website, I adore it, is that when you first open it up, one of those little windows pops up, right? And it says, I'm going to read it here. My mind powers compel you to sign up for author emails, special offers, and free stuff. 
All this I will provide unto you for your correctly sequenced email characters. I love that. I, you have no idea how long I laughed about that. I adore it. And so that's the website. But more important than that, I think, is this whole – so back to publishing. For those of you out there who are trying to figure out how am I going to get published, how am I going to write and have people read my words and all that, um, we all know what a patron is. Mm-hmm. And historically, patrons were have been remembered as – Uber super wealthy people with way more money than they knew what to do with who would go out and spend it on expensive artistic um, things that would happen, you know. Definitely. The, what's that? The cathedral. What was I talking about earlier? The, the Sistine, Sistine Chapel. Chapel, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The problem with the word patron is that it tends to create that instant categorized idea that, oh, that's what wealthy people do. Mm-hmm. But – For those of us who've been paying attention over the last year and have been watching um, Bernie Sanders Mm. um, conduct perhaps the first ever campaign, definitely in modern history, that did not um, sell out and use um, money from super wealthy corporations and whatnot, um, crowdfunding Mm -hmm. is changing the world. It's a whole other way that the world's changing, another piece of technology changing things. So tell us about... Patreon, real quickly, and um, and what you are looking to do with, with Patreon. It. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Patreon is a social... Patreon.com. Patreon, not yes. patron, Patreon. Yep. Right. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Yep. Got it. Com. Is a, uh, it's, it's a social platform. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a fusion between the Medici philosophy, which was the family of bankers back in Renaissance Italy who did things like support the creation of the Sistine Chapel Mm -hmm. and uh, Kickstarter. And it basically relies on the disruptive technology of microtransactions. So the idea is that for a lot of really small transactions of money, people can start making reasonable livings, in my case, for writing small fiction. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that you can get out there that are are creative endeavors, songs, uh, art, uh, stories, etc. There's lots of different kinds of creators. Animation. Right. So you go yeah. to patreon.com mm-hmm. and you can instantly start searching around for different people. Correct. Yeah. If you want to find Matt, you're going to look for Feed for Brains or Matthew Allen Fire. So that's how they yeah. find you. Yeah. But yeah, I've seen, I've been browsing around. There's um like a, a woman with, so about six months ago, there was a woman who was starting to write articles about what was going on with the political mm-hmm. theater mm-hmm. and the primary. And she wanted to be able to do it full time. So she, her Patreon, 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 Patreon. Okay. Yeah. Her Patreon account basically started being circulated by people who wanted to support her. And she was saying, Hey, I want to do this and I need 2000 bucks a month in order to pay my bills. And I can go ahead and devote all of my time to doing this. And, um, it was her plea to people and enough people liked what she was writing that she got up. I mean, she got close to two thousand dollars a month, yeah. and it was what was it? I think people were signing up, basically, um, like a, a monthly. Um, oh, what's the word for it? I'm trying to find a really good word. It's not contribution, even so much. It's more like a commitment. Like I commit to support you every almost. month going yeah. forward. Yeah. And um, I don't like that word. Subscription makes me think of magazines. <laughs> but it was it was very different. And people were like, it's like what you would do with Bernie Sanders when you sure. just signed up to be a, a monthly contributor. Mm-hmm. And that was exciting to watch her doing something that was essentially journalism. Yeah. One of the things I really like about Patreon is it gives you – so when you find fans, right, you now have a direct link to talk to them. Writing has been – been known as the loneliest occupation. And it really is because a lot of us, you know, we, we actually isolate ourselves. We try to isolate ourselves while we're actually creating something. And then we go out into the world and you can wait months and years and never hear back from anybody or never hear anything positive back from anybody. I mean, if, if you go the traditional route, you can hear a lot of rejection. Or you can also, as happened with um, Will North, a fellow Islander, mm-hmm. you can have a book picked up. Your agent yeah. adores you. It's um, 
picked up by one of the big five nowadays. Everything's wonderful and great. This happened before the collapse. Um, it was number six or seven was the mm-hmm. company. Yeah. And then they said, oh, we're going under and yeah. we own the rights to your book. So we're going to go sync and take your book with us. Exactly. And then, you know, here you have like nothing and you can't, you know, All you have to like fight worthless. back to try to even yeah. get access to your own book. Whereas if you are selling independently, mm-hmm. No one can take it away from you. You haven't given up your rights to it. Definitely. You you still own all of the rights to that work. And, you know, if somebody wants to come down the pipe later and offer you something better for than what you've gotten on mm-hmm. your own, great. People do that. Hugh Howey's a really great example of that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he's also a really great champion of independent publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Patreon is as, in many ways, is as disruptive as Amazon was. Um, because it means that the creator gets to keep everything that they work on developing um, minus the the fees for keeping the website up, which is mm-hmm. it's pretty reasonable, right? Um, you know, and and what I hope to achieve with it, what I'm trying to do with Patreon is is grow my audience, being an independent, in mostly independently published author, because I do have some some small press publications out there that I've been part of. Mm. Um, but being a, a mostly independently published author means that I don't have a great deal of exposure. There's not a big publicity engine behind anything that I've published, right? Um, and that, that means that, you know, for you to know my name, you probably have, you know, met me face-to-face. Right. We've, you know, we've uh, pressed skin and shaken hands and all, all that stuff, right? Right, right, right. Um, and and there's you know I, I don't sell I'm not Stephen King I don't sell a hundred thousand copies in the first month of, pre- of publication mm-hmm. um, or pre sales yeah. yeah there's no there's no such thing as that for me right but um, what it does do is gives me an opportunity to kind of focus in on the people that I think or that that would most like to see works that I am working on. So right here, mm-hmm. you say on what do you write? This is on the um, patreon.com mm-hmm. backslash feet for brains. Patreon is going to work well for me because I love to write serialized stories. Currently, I have several stories broken into sequential installments, and I'm always developing more. So it reminds me a little bit. Some I'm pretty sure I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that some of I think some of Jane Austen's works Quite were actually published yeah. at, in that same way. Yeah. So you had, you know, this monthly paper magazine that would come out and the women were all waiting for the next installment. And then exactly. eventually we know it now as usually as a whole book or a movie. But yeah. so um, what's it's it's really awesome, that feeling of waiting with anticipation. And it says over here, um, so it talks about rewards. That is a term used by Patreon. I don't personally like that term um but essentially it's what do you get yeah. in exchange for supporting exactly me? and um so it says here as soon as i publish all patrons get a story bundle and it continues one a month you'll be able to choose your favorite e-reader format kindle or nook etc um, each package comes with custom cover art from an array of independent artists who work with me to illustrate that month's story and by the way folks the um previously published works. I mean, I love the cover art, actually. Oh, thank you. It's really cool. Uh, th- that's a shout out to, to that artist in particular, who's an Eastern Washington friend of mine, um, Zane Kinney. He's just really, really excellent artist. Zane Kinney. Yeah. Zane, Z-A-N-E. Yeah, Z-A-N-E. And it's how you spell Kinney. K-I-N-N-E-Y. K-I-N-N-E-Y. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. That's, that's uh, the second in my Sports and Space series. So I, I'm... For those of you who don't know, I'm a huge fan of endurance sports, and I have mm-hmm. outlined a number of and written um, a number of uh, stories that are basically uh, sports happening in space. So that's their connected oh, theme. Fun! That's yeah. awesome. It's like, well, right? Quidditch. Everyone knows Quidditch now, all exactly. over the the world, and it doesn't even exist, yeah. but it's in our minds. Exactly. It exists. Yeah. The first one is is endurance racing on Mars. That's the big red buckle, and this one is upslope, and it is uh, basically riding riding great big tricycles on Europa. So, <laughs> although it's a lot more complicated than that, but well, yeah. and, and it's obviously about more than just what is okay. So, I think everyone who listens to this show will agree that um, 
when we read a story and a fictional story, there's obviously nonfiction is brilliant in its way. Poetry is wonderful in its way. But when we read a fictional story and we begin to fall in love with the characters and the, the life dilemmas and issues and questions they're facing start to matter to us and we want them to resolve them, we are practicing resolving our own issues in our own life um, through them. Definitely. And so there's just, you know, so much life-improving value that can exist in a fictional story, whether it's on another planet in a sci-fi realm or whether it's on another planet in a fantasy realm. It does not matter. Yeah. It's it's the story that matters. It's it's it's, it's basically, you know, the, the idea is that it's – we're talking about setting here. William Shakespeare didn't necessarily always write things on Earth, and even when he did, sometimes those descriptions of Earth were fantastic. I mean – you know, Hamlet's dead father was a ghost, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that is beyond most people's experience. He was essentially writing a kind of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, serialization, I think, is really great. Um, when I was a kid, I was very much into serialized comic books. Well, uh, of course. Yeah. The idea that, that next episode there'd be some resolution of a cliffhanger that the, that you left me with today right. was really important, and it, that anticipation was, I think, critical almost to the storytelling. And That's actually a good point because cartoons yeah. don't do that. Cartoons no. tend to seal up the problem at the end. you got a resolution. It's all over. Yeah. Whether it's Tarzan or Thunder of the Barbarian or Spider-Man or whatever it is you grew up with. But you're right. The comic books were specifically designed to always Make have you, you waiting for the next yeah. one with an eager... Yeah. And even in situations where where sometimes there's you know maybe there's a premise that that you start with a, a crux of that particular story that is resolved you're you're still left with something wanting more right yeah and and that idea is I think is really compelling and I don't I don't think it's done enough and you were talking about how Jane Austen yes she did mm-hmm. used to write serialized fiction um, the same can be said for many many people because for a long time. What a press was, was basically a, a stopping point along the way of a constant story machine. And so you had Charles Dickens writing stories, and he wrote them serialized. Even, even did Mark folks, Twain do that, I think? Um, I believe Mark Twain did some, but not entirely. No, no, not yeah. entirely. But yeah. the thing is that the, the publishing engine back then was much more tilted towards serialization than it is now, or has been mm-hmm. since about the 50s. Um, and the the difference in the way we tell stories is almost entirely predicated on this notion of how we can make money from those stories. Well, yeah, the serialist, I mean, it makes sense because if when you had those stories, you know, let's say it's a women's magazine or something, you know, in the 1800s mm-hmm. and it's got this, you know, there's going to be the next piece of the story and the next piece. Well, what is that surrounded by? It's surrounded by advertisements. It's surrounded Correct. by, you know, I mean, that's what magazines are designed to do those awful terrible vogue things that you have to go through about 35 pages of advertisements before you just get to the the whatever the pages where they tell you what's actually in yeah, the magazine the story that you're looking yeah, for yeah yeah right um so so to make money on a book in 1805 or something would be really challenging because you're asking people to just buy the book mm-hmm. but to make money on a magazine where people might be buying it because of the story that's in there, but you also have the advertisers who are paying you to have space for advertising in there. So it would be more sustainable economically as a model, perhaps. Certainly. I think it, I think back then it definitely was much more right. sustainable. Um, it also doesn't rely quite so much on, on huge success. So mm. one of the big problems, and, and I think Hugh Howey talks very well to this, with traditional publishers right now is that they rely on this idea mm-hmm. that they're going to have bestsellers during a quarter or some other reporting cycle. Right. They they will have big block, blockbusters that will come out. There'll be merchandising that will happen as a result of the story that they're publishing, et cetera. And all of that, all of that is tied up in kind of always hitting home runs, right? But what it does do is it does the- – Supply them with enough cash that they can withstand the fifteen or thirty books that don't become bestsellers exactly. as well. But but the problem is that that ultimately when you when you look at how that 
that machine functions, mm-hmm. right, they're, they're losing traction because guys like me and people like me are, are, are taking away from their blood bluster. Um, I, you know, the small press that I have been working with mm-hmm. for about, about two years now, um, is, you know, sells, outsells most of the major presses. So when, when an anthology comes out, um, the first month we, we sell enough that we are per copy wise selling, outselling a lot of, a lot of other authors. Right. Well, and they, I, we used to do like a whole other show on yeah. this at some point oh, because yeah. <laughs> the, 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 so, so folks, um, basically what we're talking about, there are, um, what's been really nice about self-publishing there, there was sort of a negative connotation that was attached to self-publishing because it was viewed as this thing that not very good writers would do because the big publishers didn't want them. And it is true that there is some crappy writing that gets self-published. There's people who just have a lot of extra cash and they, you know, write something and they don't want to sit around and revise it anymore. So they just throw it out there. Yes, that happens. But to be honest, there's some crap that's being published by the big houses too. So, um, what has happened that's been remarkable is to watch some people who have gone into self-publishing. There's a young woman who I was reading a great article about her about three years ago. She decided she wanted to write about, I think it was about trolls. Mm-hmm. And it was basically sort of like, um, not fan fiction, but it was uh, very modern, contemporary fiction, sort of like what they people had done with vampires, fan fiction off of Twilight or whatever. But she wanted to do troll stuff. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't get anyone to pick it up in the publishing world, so she started to self-publish them. After like a year, she had made over a million dollars, and that's profit mm-hmm. in a year. Um, and she had caught the attention of agents and publishers who were saying, hey, can we go ahead and work with you now? Yeah. (laughs) And that's what's fascinating is that a lot of agents will tell you they don't sit around and go, oh, great. Here's my slush pile. I'm like going to be exhausted at the end of it, but maybe there's something great in here. They tend to turn to their computer and go whizzing through the self-published world, and they're trying to find what is it that's selling really well. Yeah. And they're like trying – I don't even know who, how to – Who sold a who sold thousand copies? Yeah, right, right exactly. So, so self-publishing is, is very legit, and there's some incredibly good writing that comes through sure. independent and self-publishing yeah. and avenues. The other thing, too, is that you don't have to worry – I mean, the the idea that there's a gatekeeper or a series of gatekeepers preventing you from having any success in a career that you're trying to... This is a small business. Mm-hmm. Right? I, mean, I, I look at this as a small business. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I treat it every day. It's also a discipline, a creative discipline. And mm-hmm. that's something that I, I put up on a pedestal and I pursue. Right. Um, but But... It has to be solvent. Otherwise, it's just it will never be anything other than a hobby. Right. 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 So if if I continue to do it and I fully plan on continuing to do it, um, you know, Patreon is is kind of the spearhead of my endeavor right mm-hmm. now because of the way I like to write, because mm-hmm. of the stories I like to write. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, um, I, I found my place, which is a great thing. Um well, I think what's really nice about this is we don't live in a world anymore where there's very many coffee table magazines. No. You know, unless you're getting your hair cut somewhere and you're staring mm-hmm. down at 15, you know, what are they, what do you call them? You know, magazines about clothing. Sure. It's just not really a part of the world because the internet has replaced the need for paper mm-hmm. magazines. And so um, it used to be, oh, well, go find some great literary magazine or just some magazine and have them start doing your serialized works and right. Yeah. But that just doesn't even really exist as an option. And what does exist is what's on the Internet. But the Internet can feel like it's challenging to find things. Mm -hmm. So what I like about Patreon is that a person can come here, check out some of your work. If they find that they like it, then they're like, oh, I can just become a patron and now it's going to come to me. Mm-hmm. It's like your own personal literary magazine. Exactly. Instead of having to, even if you were to subscribe to a literary magazine, you might find that one month there's three stories you love, and the next month they have completely different authors, and you don't like any of their styles at all. Mm-hmm. Patreon allows you to choose your own favorite writers. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and it, also, it also gives you the liberty of deciding that you don't like it. Right. It's... it's 
you know, putting a dollar down on somebody's Patreon account to read their latest short story and find out that you don't really like it is is far less, you know, yeah. problematic than putting, you know, ten, fifteen dollars down on the same elect on an electronic novel, right? Right. And and finding out you don't like it. Right. And so over here on the side, and then we're going to have to close out because we're running out sure. of time. So like you said, you know, a person can experiment initially. They can pledge a buck. They can pledge $5 or more a month, $10, $25. And for each of these, there's basically just different things that they're going to receive. Yeah, definitely. But more than what they get is what they're giving. And I think what's important to remember, folks, is that every person can be a patron of another person. What we're really talking about is people building up fellow people. This is a dialogue. So this is awesome. I love Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But if you want to be, let's see here, as you say at the beginning, more thrill, more adventure, more compassion, more laughter. If that's what you're looking for, come check out uh, Matthew Allen Thayer at patreon.com backslash feet for brains, or you can go to his website, feetforbrains.com. And Matt, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, March. It was, it was a pleasure. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Totally cool. Okay, <laughs> my name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Matt Thayer here on Prose Poetry and Purpose, recorded in the sunny and beautiful studio at Sunrise Ridge on Vashon Island. Thanks so much to Voice of Vashon for supporting me. They're mm -hmm. my patrons in a way for supporting me in creating this show. And now I'm going to leave you with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana. Hey, come here and gather around the stage. The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability they own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped, we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do the bidding of the many, not the few You enforce your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone your thievery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We had little to lose, we must confess 
Your empty words do leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets We occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few You can't divide us into sides And from our gaze you cannot hide Denial serves to amplify And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We are the many You are the few.